that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There's no way you can be saved if you don't get circumcised. I mean, can't you see how obviously true that is? We spent not too long ago a full month flying over the book of Hebrews. So we don't need to spend much time on the Jews' thought here. But let's just say they were convinced that Christianity was a subset of Judaism. They would probably even call it an advance, a movement forward. But they believed that the law must still be a part of faith. All 613 commandments, if you side with Rabbi Simla, are a part of what makes you a child of God's. Makes you wonder. <laughs> do we ever do anything like this? <laughs> uh, do we have an idea that Christians do certain things? Well, it's not really church if you don't sing hymns. <laughs> right? There are people, mostly in the East Coast, who think that if you don't meet in a church with a steeple, then what you're doing might be nice. But it isn't church. <laughs> How about stained glass? Can you be a real Christian if you don't want stained glass windows where you meet? The Greek Orthodox Church actually has icons mostly paintings, as a part of their service. You can't properly worship God without them. Well, what about things people have or do that show they aren't Christian, no matter what they say? No real Christian would want to have a latte stand in the church building. Uh, we, actually, we actually had someone say that right here. <laughs> That's a long time ago. Or a bookstore. I've heard people say, they're collecting money. Jesus is going to show up and he's going to turn all their tables over. Or a gymnasium. Sweaty people in the church? Forget about having a Taekwondo class. Well, we might as well be teaching Buddhism here. You can't really praise Jesus with rap music. Okay, okay, well, I'm... I'm kind of partial towards that one. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, there was an entire evangelical denomination that believed using musical instruments of any kind when you sing to God was a sin. For sure, guitars and drums like those wicked rockers. <laughs> Remember that one? Now, mostly they've dropped that idea now. I don't know if you knew that. They even, have you guessed it, use guitars and drums now. <laughs> so I'm not really sure who was sitting back then. Curiously, there are some younger people who believe that anyone who wants organ music on a Sunday morning is probably a baby Christian. They might be old, but they aren't really mature, or they'd want to embrace the new music. Really. I've actually heard people insist that this is a measure of Christian growth. Now, many of these things, okay, all of these things, are not theological linchpins, okay? 
They're really just societal preferences. We need to be careful not to identify a perceived cultural norm as an indicator of faith. And that is precisely what at least some of these men from Judea were doing. And how did the church in Antioch deal with them after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them? Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now I want to ask you. Paul and Barnabas just had a fantastically successful mission trip. Probably every person in the church had sat under their teaching. Do you think that the people in Antioch trusted them enough that they would have agreed to just kick these Jerusalem guys out, should they have said to? Of course they would. So why didn't they? Maybe because the people in Antioch, the Gentiles, were the mature ones. Truth is, it should have been the Jews who were more mature. Do you remember what the writer of the Hebrews, when he berated the ones that he wrote to because they ought to be teachers already, but instead they need milk, not solid food? The Gentile Christians in Antioch and Paul and Barnabas were putting up with these men because they really were believers. They just weren't understanding God's plan. And no matter how important our hero's Christian freedom was, they would not simply discard their Jewish brothers to gain it. Later, Paul would write, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That pretty much sums up what's going on here. We need to remember this when somebody gets all upset with us because we aren't doing church right. I mean, who's the one who's strong here? Okay, today's first rabbit trail. (laughs) The proper thing for any person to do is not the strong should make the weak do what's right. Now, God himself does not do that. The strong should help the weak, even to the point of putting up with their failings. The scientized version of the wrong way is labeled survival of the fittest. Extinction. The strong should dominate the weak, even if it means the less endowed die. No, and no again, please. (laughs) We are to care for the fragile, the weak, even the immature. Well, let's watch how the early church dealt with this problem, cared for the weak, and maybe we can learn something about how we can help less mature believers to grow in their spiritual lives. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, Phoenicia and Samaria are areas like the northwest or the southern states, large areas. The trip must have taken some time, maybe months. And so they stopped in cities along the way and gathered with the Christians in those cities. What a great encouragement it must have been for Paul and Barnabas to see the joy on the faces of those believers. Although I do wonder what the men from Judea who troubled them and who must have accompanied them felt. Hmm. There was a time in this church a while ago when things were pretty tough. At the same time in Becky's and my personal life, a raft of trouble came our way. I can't 
tell you what an encouragement Christians from other churches were, as well as from here. When we have a conflict in the church, it's a good idea to get with other believers and share with them the good things happening. And when those from other churches face their own troubles, we should tell them of the good things in our lives. By the way, the fact that Paul and Barnabas are willing to undertake this such a long and dangerous trip to resolve this issue shows how very important it is. Well, eventually they get to their destination when they come to Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Second verse, same as the first. (laughs) At least these guys are consistent. Although it's tempting to ask, do you guys ever learn anything? (laughs) But notice that it is only some of them. It would appear that most of the Jewish Christians sided with Paul. So that's good news. But look carefully at what those Judaizers said. Let's order them to keep the law of Moses, the primary sign of which was circumcision. Have you noticed that people who have to have it their way always tend to try to order people around? (laughs) Where's the trust in God? I mean, if it's his church, will he not take care of it? Wouldn't it be enough to do right yourself and let the Holy Spirit convict the other believers of their sin? Or at least their misunderstanding. True, he might use us as agents in convicting them. But that's not the same as ordering people around. And then there's the aspect of authority. Why would these Jews think it their right to order the Gentiles to do anything? Well, because they're real sure that they're better than the Gentiles. We Jews have been the people of God for 1,400 years. Obviously, we are God's favorite. We should be the ones telling everyone else how to live. (laughs) That's another commonality of people who have it have to have it their way in churches, they're real sure they're the ones who have it right. The ones who are favored by God. And all the time, they're actually the immature ones. (laughs) By the way, don't forget that there are some things that are wrong to do as a believer. It's It's not like everything's allowed. There's some things that should not be done in church. And some that definitely should. Not long ago, we looked at a list from the writer to the Hebrews. We should strive for peace with everyone. We should not let any root of bitterness rise up in us. We should not be sexually immoral or unholy. We should be grateful. We should be hospitable to Christian strangers. We should remember the mistreated. We should hold marriage in honor. We should not love money. We should trust God and be content with what we have. We should obey our Christian leaders and lead well ourselves. That's a short list of do's and don'ts. So how do we know which things to be concerned with and which to be willing to discuss? And how should our first century brothers have known? Obviously, the Bible has the answers. But these guys know the Bible. Well, the Hebrew Bible in our Old Testament. And remember, they are Christians, believers. So why didn't they get it? Perhaps they were so focused on this single issue that they hadn't thought out all the implications of their proposition. They had turned what was now a cultural difference into a theological absolute. 
In particular, they missed the truth that there would be no Gentile church to speak of if they persist in this requirement. They need some help. And the early church gives them a way to manage their thoughts. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, we could say that everything to this point has been the pregame hype. (laughs) Now it's time for the first pitch. But we need to stop here and get a mental picture of the process. Remember that the leaders of the church were taking a chance in coming together. With all the apostles and elders together, the anti-Christian Jewish leaders could try to come in and arrest the whole bunch. So why take the chance? Because they desire unity in the church and they know this is the way to get it. They need to let these good, if mistaken, brothers debate to give them a means to say the words, express the issues out loud. We have to give people a forum to think and even challenge one another, individually and as a group, preferably in that order. Our seminary professors would often say, don't do theology alone. Individually, any one of us can get it wrong. Just like these guys who believed in their heart of hearts that Gentile believers couldn't really be saved unless they lived like Jews. This was, in fact, also a theological issue. Don't read the Bible alone and then think you understand everything. Oh, well, it's obvious that this means that. Better to ask, do you think this means that? Hey, you might be right. Then again, if you're wrong, you won't be so embarrassed. You can just say, oh, I wondered about that, and and it would be true. So how did they, our first century forebears, finally come to consensus with three pitches the first of which we'll consider next. The three strikes. The first century church had a problem. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What's he doing? Where's he going here? It's good to debate that eventually a decision has to be made. Somebody's got to stand for the truth. And Peter is that man. Well, the first of them in this game. Here he reminds them of his authority and his experience in building the church, both of which God had given him. And, by the way, this is one of the reasons God had Peter there when the first Gentile group believed in Jesus. And God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. By faith. You remember the event at Cornelius' house? It's been a long time since we were there. but And before that, when Peter had the dreams, the shock that the Jewish believers had when God provided the same miraculous sign that he had for the Jews. They were amazed. Do you remember that we concluded that sign was specifically for the Jews, not the Gentiles? So that they, the Jews, 
would have incontrovertible evidence that Gentiles did believe and were accepted by God even though they didn't become Jewish proselytes. That's why all this happened back then. And Peter says their hearts are as good as our hearts. Some of those Jews did think, yeah, we're all Christians, but we're Jews and you're just Gentiles. By the way, Let's stop here and remember who is writing this note and to whom it was written. We have a tendency to think of some sort of computer-type operation when we say mind, but when we say heart, we tend to think of emotional, chemical event of some sort. First century people did not have such a ridiculous differentiations, and they're right. You can't separate a person into individual components like that. When we read heart in the New Testament, we need to know that they were thinking of the inner man. Mind, heart, soul, whatever you want to call it. Everything. But certainly the thoughts of a person. So when you hear or read heart or hearts in the scriptures like this, read it twice. Once using mind and once using heart. And remember that they were probably thinking both at the same time. And if you put both together, you're probably getting close to what they were thinking. Okay, back to Peter's argument. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Putting who to the test? Not the Gentiles. God. This is a serious rebuke. Do you remember when Peter said to Ananias, you have not lied to men but to God? Well, they remembered. Not so long ago, we noticed that the writer to the Hebrews showed the two aspects of Christian life, that to God and that to each other. And he noted that you cannot separate them. Peter is saying that forcing Gentiles to do this is a sin against God, as well as these Gentile brothers. And then that really hard truth. No Jew had ever kept the law. A truth that was obviously overlooked by Jews since the writer to the Hebrews also made this point pretty strenuously. They had come to equate having the law with obeying, living the law. It's not the same. Which brings up the obvious question, How do Jews get right with God? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Putting everybody pretty much at the same level. Which sums up the book of Hebrews rather well, doesn't it? All those Jewish works are great, but they don't give you salvation. Only the gift of Jesus does that. I I really wonder if the writer of the book to the Hebrews was at this meeting. Because it sure sounds like it. It feels like it, doesn't it? And don't forget the contention of those men who were causing the trouble. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Peter says to those Jews, unless you trust in Jesus, we cannot be saved. <laughs> and that's the same way that they are saved. <laughs> Since all of us here are Gentiles, is that true? No Jews here? Okay. That's your good news. 
we don't have to live by any of the Old Testament rules to be saved. I mean, you can try to depend on that if you'd want, but why would you? Besides, their purpose, the purpose of those rules, was to remind the readers of their sin. But our sins are taken away in Christ. We can read those laws to learn about God and His grace in forgiving our sins. No need to relive our sins in carrying out all those laws. And that must be what those people were thinking. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Why didn't they fall silent and listen to Barnabas and Paul before? The signs and wonders were given by God specifically to convince them of the truth of these conversions. Paul and Barnabas told them all this earlier. But this time they're actually listening. Why? Well, because of Peter's words. And please note, Paul and Barnabas now simply report the truth. Although they had debated vigorously with these men in Antioch, here they leave that to Peter and to James. Sometimes it's wise to back off the argument with a specific person and let God bring in others to carry on. We don't have to be the agent for change all the time. <laughs> Paul and Barnabas pitched the second strike against this erroneous teaching that was keeping Gentiles out of the church. Peter, having heaved the first, James, let's go with the third. After they had finished speaking, James replied, James, the brother of Jesus and leader of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. James was not associated with Gentiles in any significant way. He was a very Jewish man. He even uses the Jewish name Simeon instead of the common Greek pronunciation Simon in the next verse. A couple of historians, uh, most notably Josephus, mention James, the brother of Jesus, particularly in the context of his extremely careful adherence to the Mosaic law. He was a Jew of Jews. And he joins in to challenge the ridiculous notion of the Judaizers. Wouldn't it be great if we had James and the apostles of Jesus to help us solve all of our church disputes? Wouldn't they be able to tell us exactly what Jesus would have done and what he would want us to do? Oh, wait. <laughs> but that's why we're here, isn't it? We do have... James and the Apostles. We call it the New Testament. Okay? But let's put our minds back in first century Jerusalem and let's note the contrast of the behavior of the Judaizers who tried to order people around with the patience and courtesy of James as he speaks. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Okay, that's well, very Jewish. <laughs> Even quotes the prophets. Peter showed them the authority God had given to him and the work of the Holy Spirit in the Gentiles as he opposed this proposition. Paul and Barnabas showed them the power of God working in and among the Gentiles as he worked through them. James, with a relationship to Jesus none of them had, takes them back to the authority of the Scriptures to defend the work of God in the Gentiles. But 
tent of David. <laughs> what is that? Well, it's very Jewish. It means a, the ruling of a descendant of David. All these men were Christians as well as Jews, and they all understood that this ruler was Jesus, a direct descendant of David in human terms. So the scriptures, James is saying, have already said that Gentiles can be called by the name of the Lord. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Well, the last verse is easy. James ends by encouraging the Jewish believers. The law of Moses has and will be taught every Sabbath. Don't worry about that. But he agrees with Peter and Paul that that should not be the primary issue of the church. We, the Jews, should not trouble them with the law of Moses, but we should ask them to do these four things. Avoid things polluted by idols, sexual morality, things strangled in blood. Why these particular four? It seems a strange list to us. But we must remember that the issue is not right living morality, but fellowship. This is all about fellowship. How do Christians from a Jewish background and a Gentile background get together? This is all about unity. Remember? In that age, sharing a meal was virtually synonymous with agreeing in belief with someone. Neither Jews nor Gentiles of the day would share a meal with someone with whom they greatly disagreed concerning proper living. My mom told a story of one of the more frightening moments of her childhood. She had nightmares for years because of this. Even she told me I was in my 40s. She still was scared by it. It was before her dad was a believer. He became a believer after she had married, actually. They all went to church. You know, that was a virtual requirement in the community. But he didn't believe. Wasn't, to use our terms, saved. It was a presidential election year. <laughs> Do you see the problem coming? <laughs> My mom's family, the Friesens, were good friends with another farming family and had them over for a Sunday meal. My grandfather had recently acquired a radio, something the other family did not yet own, so he demonstrated it to them. Apparently, a commentator was extolling the virtues of one of the presidential candidates, and the comments that followed quickly showed that the two patriarchs had wildly differing opinions. <laughs> the argument that ensued became so heated that my mom thought her dad might kill the other man, literally kill the other man. He was a big and powerful man and had demonstrated his propensity to use that might to carry out his arguments, shall we say, which is why she was so frightened. Because of this difference in opinion, these families never shared a meal together again, ever. My grandfather moved before he was saved and never saw these people again. This is how intensely people of the first century felt about fellowshipping together. It was that intense. You just don't do it with people who greatly disagree with you on basic issues. So how can Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians ever hope to fellowship together? Well, that's what these four rules are all about. Remember, this is not a question of Christian morality. Everyone there agreed on that. Christians need to live morally pure lives. These four rules 
were about the Gentiles acquiescing to the rituals so important to their Jewish brothers so that they could have meals together, fellowship together. Jewish people could never eat food that had been offered to idols. Unlike the Gentile culture, consuming the meat of something strangled or that still had blood in it was absolutely unacceptable. The rule about sexual morality might seem straightforward enough, but remember the basic Christian ethic disallows that. It can't be it. What James may be referring to here is the behavior which was both morally acceptable and legal in the Gentile world, and yet anathema to Jews, the marrying of one's own cousin. Stop doing these things so that Christian Jews can enjoy fellowship with you. There's a sense, we could even say that James is asking the Gentile believers to be the mature ones and put up with the Jewish need for ritual purity. That's our three strikes. The Jewish believers who believed everyone must live by the law of Moses to gain salvation have struck out. <laughs> Peter pitched a beautiful curveball. Paul, a sinker that was a thing of beauty. James let go with straight heat, a fastball that no one could catch up to. If you're not watching the Mariners right now, I don't know what's wrong with you. They're doing great. They just won two games out of three against the best team in baseball. And they got one more today, so I'll be listening to it on the way home. It's not in my notes. <laughs> uh, but our Jewish people, they, they were all really on the same team. And our mistaken brothers have come all the way around. And they agree with our three pitchers. And however it all happened, they came to this agreement. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. To choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Now, brothers here means Jews. <laughs> These Jewish brothers were the perfect choice to counteract the wrong-headed teaching of other Jews. And they sent this letter to the church. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the leaders of the Jewish church have agreed. A pretty solid foundation for the instructions. And we should note that the letter contrasts some persons who troubled them and the men chosen to carry the letter, but particularly our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would it be possible to give a more glowing recommendation of Barnabas and Paul? Clearly, this letter is designed to support them in their ministry. And now, to the message itself. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, 
to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit. They're telling them what the Holy Spirit thinks. (laughs) Well... As those who were, after all, responsible for writing the scripture, they were given the knowledge of what the Holy Spirit wanted so they could show the believers in Antioch that God himself was on their side. Although the Spirit helps us today. No one has this type of gift from God. If someone says, the Holy Spirit wants me to tell you and equates their words with scripture, they are lying. Flat out lying. Nobody today has words that are at the level of Scripture, period. Anything else is, I have a feeling God wants you to know or to do or whatever. The only thing that we can absolutely know God says is that which is written in the Scriptures. Now, there are lots of people who believe that the Holy Spirit gives them a word of knowledge, but if you ask them whether this carried the authority of Scripture, they would vigorously deny it and they would be right to do so. The point is that some in the early church, particularly the apostles, were prophets who did foretell and people who did have specific information God wanted the church to know because there was no New Testament Scripture yet. And the church needed this sort of help. The church leaders in Jerusalem had this level of communication with the Holy Spirit. And they let the church in Antioch know that he was sending this message as well as them. Can you imagine any greater encouragement? (laughs) You think there is any way to give greater authority to these words? This issue, they're saying, is settled. There's no more discussion. That's how serious it is to say the Holy Spirit says. Did you notice? They're careful not to give any orders here. They could have formed these instructions as commands, but they avoid all such types of words. In fact, even the form of the letter is conciliatory. It's that of the Greco-Roman culture, not the Jewish In other words, the apostles and elders made every possible effort to ensure that they treated those Gentile believers with the greatest respect to accommodate the church in Antioch and yet never abandon their faith and to ensure their message would build up these Christian brothers. And how did it work out? So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they have spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. The correct action of the Jerusalem church brought joy. Good teaching that strengthened them. Good fellowship and a peaceful Parting. A lot different than what it was at the beginning of the story. A great dispute. <laughs> when we deal with conflict with other believers, we need to be looking for these goals. Are we causing joy? 
Is good teaching that strengthens others occurring? Is there good fellowship that makes us want to spend some time together? When we have to go our separate ways, can we have a peaceful parting? It's very important. Because if we do, then, like the church in Jerusalem, we will fulfill the words of Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Father, thank you for the example of these two churches. And even the men who were mistaken at first, who when confronted with sound teaching and with the words of the Spirit through Peter and Paul and James, they learned. And they became silent and said, yeah, let's agree with this. It's just so good to see people grow in the faith and to love one another in this way. Help us as we have inevitable conflict. As soon as there's more than one person, you're going to have conflict. We just pray that you would help us to live as these men did at that time and learn how to communicate and then learn how to learn the words of God so that we can live in a way that the world looks at us and says, wow, you must be Christians. Why else would you live like that? What a wonderful possibility. Thank you, Lord. And maybe we should thank you for those conflicts that come up. How else are we going to show learning to get along if we don't have the conflicts? So we thank you even for those. But help us to work through them properly so that we can care for each other and show the world Jesus Christ. That's what we want most of all. Thank you, Father. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message, first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. If you'd like to support us so we can do more, well, you'll have to work at it. We have no one-click button for giving on our webpage, southbeachhope.org. We are a tiny church in a small town and simply cannot afford either money or time to set up such a thing. But at least with our modern technology and with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and anyone around the world. Hopefully, we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture. <laughs>